Well, this sermon today is called The, the Showdown in Mount Carmel. Uh, as you talked last week, we, we saw Elijah step on the scene a little bit. And here, uh, go ahead and just like last week, just like Ben did last week, I'll give you a little, little showcase of what's going to happen towards the end uh, that, that Elijah and Ahab finally confront. And we have this great showdown, which was really the, the focal point of this chapter, kind of pushes all the way to this moment there in the 21st verse. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Uh, that, that, that is the, the focal point that we're going to be moving towards. Uh, this story just hits this great confrontation. And most of you have probably heard this story a ton, thousands of times, hundreds of times maybe. Um, I came to, to Christ later in life and in my 20s, and so I did not really grow up going to Sunday school all the time. And so a lot of times I, when I heard these stories as an adult, it was, you know, maybe I heard the story, but I, I just didn't have any memory of it. Uh, but it would be kind of a new, fresh story. Um, but it's an important one of seeing the prophet of God standing in the midst of a very difficult time. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at it in three different areas. First, the, the place of redemption. We're going to see this, the situation that's going on here, this place of redemption uh, in Israel. The, the servants of redemption we'll look at next, uh, two in particular in this passage. And then, of course, the inquisition of redemption, this point, this question where Isaiah, where Elijah is looking to the people saying, whom are you going to serve? He's questioning them, who are you going to serve this day? Uh, it's a question for us as well. First, let's look at the, the place of redemption and the situation. Now, and as you started last week and even the weeks before as we've been going through uh, this passage in 1 Kings, we know that there's a lot of moral and spiritual decay. But because of this great drought that's going on, we see an economic decay. Right? If you're an agrarian society and, and your industry is what? Is all built on farming. How does farming go when there is no rain? Not very well. Things do not grow. Things cannot be sold. And we are just beginning to feel the weight of that, even in our own culture, a situation in which, uh, you know, my, I myself personally, you know, jobs not happening. You know, the, the same amount of income is not coming into the Robbins household this month that would have been coming in if this pandemic had not happened. So, so at least I can sense the weight of it a little bit. I can maybe imagine it. I can experience the weight of the story in a way that maybe I could not experience before because of the situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, this great distress in the land even reminds me, as this week, I keep going back and listening to the Andrew Peterson song, uh, Is He Worthy? And just the few stanzas of, of that song remind us. And I think maybe they ring more true today and in our time than maybe they ever rang true to us before, at least for those of us who feel the effects that are going on in our country, in our state, and in our city. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. 
Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the darkness won't stop the light from shining through? I hope I do. I hope I do. Do you wish that you could see all things made new? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now a famine was severe in Samaria. And Abraham had called to Obadiah, who was with his household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifties, in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Abram said to Obadiah, Go through the land and all the springs of the water into, the valleys of the, into all the valleys. Perhaps you might find grass to save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went one direction himself, and Obadiah went the other direction. You see, in this situation, the, the, the famine was so severe, and the king, is he worried about his people? Does he, does he mention the, the, the people of Israel? Does he mention the people that he's ruling over? Not going to make any observations on that. Just going to throw that out there. Does the king really care about the people? Just going to leave that there. Leave it there. But he cares about his animals. And, right, and he sends this person, this Obadiah, which, which is the first uh, servant of redemption that we see in this passage that, that shows up because Obadiah shows up and it describes him a certain way as a God-fearer. And so this Obadiah, not, not, not the prophet, this Obadiah is a, is a civil servant, right? Like, like people of God beforehand that, that had to serve under kings that were not always acting as they ought. Or maybe even servants of God that had to serve under pagan kings. And we find here Obadiah is described as a God-fearer, so much so that he put his life on the line to hide the prophets of God in caves and to feed them with water and bread, which probably was hard to do. It would be like me trying to share toilet paper with you. It would be difficult. You know, I have just enough for myself, and somehow he was able, right, to, to hide some of the prophets and to feed them because he feared the Lord more than he feared what another man might do to him. Uh, the passage goes on, uh, verse 7, And as Obadiah, uh, as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. 
Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the sin of hand of Ahab to kill me? No, no, no. So just imagine the scene. So, so basically, Ahab marries this, this pagan princess. She is a, a worshiper of the Baals and wants to serve Baals and basically wants the head of every prophet of God on a spike. And, and basically, Elijah shows up on the screen. Now, now Obadiah, you know, he's, you know, he's been pretty good, right? I mean, seeking to help out these uh, prophets of, uh, of the Lord. And, and yet, Elijah steps on the scene. He's already caused a lot of grief. You know, I mean, the, the famine in the land is not making things go too well for this civil servant. And, and his life's already becoming very difficult. And now, Elijah says, oh, yeah, go, go tell the king I'm here. And, and was, the moment I do that, he's going to put me to death. He's going to think that I've been hiding you. He's going to figure me out. But as we go on, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when would you say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you? And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where, and so that you, I'm sorry, and so when I come and tell Ahab that he cannot find you, he will kill me. Right there, there's a little sense of fear in Obadiah. He's like, hey, as soon as I go on to tell the king that you're here, you're just going to go hide again. You've been gone for three years. You know, I don't know where you've been. No one knows where you've been. And now I'm going to say I know where you're at and I can't find you. That's going to be the end of me. Um, and, and continuing on. Um, and he's going to kill me uh, right there about the middle of verse 12. Although I, the servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did with Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I surely will show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to met Ahab and told him that Ahab went to meet Elijah. You know, this faithful civil servant was willing. He, he listened to the word of the Lord. He listened to the prophet of the Lord and went to Ahab. He was willing to put his life on the line, right? To carry out the redemptive purposes that God had in store. We read in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, one, of, one of my Puritan writers that I, that I go to his Old Testament commentaries a lot, uh, John Tripp, The fear of God putteth fear of any mortal weight as sunbeams do the fire on the heath. Now, that's not a phrase we use a lot, mortal weight or fire on the heath, but, but, but the idea is, is there that, that you imagine if you had like a big stone fireplace and you had some wood on it that only brings out so much light. And so when the light of the day comes, 
It washes out that sun, that little bit of sun that that fire might be bringing into the room, right? The sun is so much brighter. And what it's pointing to is that Obadiah, as a God-fearer, the fear of of his commitment to his Lord was so great that he was not going to fear what some king could do. Initially, sure. Right? His initial thought, I don't know. But, But then the realization... And he was able to go and stand before his king and say, Elijah is here. The, the, the reality is that when we look past whatever it is that's causing us that fear, right? that, that, that God is actually the sovereign king in control. That's what, one of those things that we need to be reminding ourselves daily, moment by moment, hour by hour. As we read in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart, Christian. Whether you're watching this by recording, watching this live, uh, I know this week will not be any better than last, and and it it could be weeks while we're going through this. And let me just say, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear the words of the Apostle Paul, the, the very words of the Lord. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light of the momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This time that we're in, and, and, and not, not to make much, but, but much as this, that, that they're suffering here in the land. The land is suffering in a great drought. And so what we need to remind ourselves daily is that this world is passing away. And how hard, and what times such as these remind us of is the insufficiency of the things in this life. Um, let's, let's move on here in the passage as we look towards uh, Elijah in particular, the other servant of redemption. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, he sent to gather all of Israel to meet him at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asher who are to eat at Jezebel's table. So you imagine this is a, a, a great scene. Can you imagine all these folks coming, the people of Israel and all the prophets of Baal coming and there's Elijah by himself about to confront the darkness that is in his world you wonder, where, where in the world has Elijah really been, though? Right? I mean, I mean, he's just kind of been off the scene. Yes, it's just a chapter ago as you're reading through your Bibles, but we see that, that it's three years later. You know, and, and a lot of times, God's working. This, this happens throughout Scripture in many different places where we see God prepares individuals for some great act of redemption. Uh, Eric Alexander, speaking of Elijah and his three years in exile... He says, when God is about to do something through a man, 
He always begins by doing something in him. You know, for, for Elijah to be used as a prophet of God, that God had to be doing some work in his heart to prepare him for such a task. To stand in the midst of the mountain, to stand before a king who wanted his head, to stand before 450 prophets of Baal and say, Baal is not the God. The Lord God of Israel, he is the God. And so we move here to kind of this, this moment of inquisition where, where ultimately Elijah says, whom is it that you are going to serve? And Elijah came near to the people. How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Whom is it that you are going to serve? And so Elijah sets up this challenge, a challenge that it seems that the, the prophet of Baals are pretty comfortable with because Baal, the, the, the God, the particular God that they were worshiping, was supposed to be the God of the storms, right? And the God of lightning and thunder. And so Elijah puts forth this challenge to him and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And it, it reminds me of what I do with my kids because when my kids, we, they got to share something. Uh, those of your parents know, if you have two kids, if you have one kid, you don't know what this is like yet. If you don't have any kids, you know what this is like. But if you have two kids and, and there's one thing that they want to share, you have a situation that you've got to deal with. And how do you make this fair? And so the, the thing that I always do is say, one of you cut it, the other one gets to pick. Right? Because that's going to ensure a certain level of fairness. You know, and so Elijah says, hey, prophet Abel, you pick the two bulls, right? You, prophet Abel, you pick two bulls and you get the first pick and I'll take whichever one you want to, you know, so, so you know that I'm not trying to trick you. And so the idea is that they're both going to set up these altars and they're both going to have a bull. They're going to put wood on it, but they're not going to put any fire upon it. And they're going to see which God will actually rain fire down to burn the sacrifice. And what this ends up looking like is a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, Elijah has a little bit of fun here because the prophet of Baals keep pleading with Baal to send fire down. And Elijah's like, you know, the, you know, sometimes people don't think the Bible has sarcasm. The Bible has sarcasm. My wife, I, I've used this illustration before, but my wife, many years ago when we first got married, uh, went to a Bible study and the Bible study teacher said, hey, you cannot have any sarcasm in your marriage because sarcasm means flesh eater. And if you have sarcasm in marriage, that, that's a really bad thing. And my wife was, came home a little bit distraught and she goes, if we can't use sarcasm in our marriage, I don't know that we would talk because that is pretty much the natural disposition of how we communicate about everything. So it's been really fun around the house of late. Um, spending lots of quality time together. But he says, ah, oh, maybe he's asleep. You know, why is it that your God of Baal is not coming to rain fire down? Because he can't. And so what this passage does is it exposes uh, with this question the reality of, of false religion. But notice here at, at this little distinction here, let's look um, at verse 31 and, or even before then. Uh, in comparison here of, of verse eight, chapter 18, 21, the Lord, is, Lord, is the Lord God 
Now, now, now this is something that, that maybe most of you know, or you, you know, might think you should know, but, but you notice here that it says the Lord is God. And, and that is a particular term to describe him. That, that means Yahweh, Lord, is God, and that, that, that God is, is, is at least a form of Elohim, which is the, the God, the, the creator. And so what Elijah is reminding the people of Israel is trying to say, the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, he, that Lord who covenanted with you and called you by name, he is the creator God. He is the sovereign king. He is the one that has the power, right? He is the true God. The Baal is not a God at all. But he reminds those of the covenant realities. Um, he reminds them both of the Abrahamic covenant when he says he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Um, right there in 31, he also reminds them of the Mosaic covenant. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. All the people come near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones and numbered of the tribes of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench for the altar. So great with two sheaths of seed. Uh, and to put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill your jars with water and pour it onto the burnt offering and onto the wood. He's like, I'm going to make this hard. You know, the bales couldn't do it, but I'm going to throw, you know, anybody ever been camping? It's always fun making that campfire the next morning when it's been raining all night. You know, and so he, because when the wood's wet, it just doesn't burn. Right? It takes, you got to dry that wood out. But he's going, I'm going to throw all this water on there. I'm going to make this as hard as possible. But he's reminding us and the people of Israel of his faithfulness. That even though Israel has constantly not followed the commandments. If you have a little bit of time this week, which I know you do, have a little bit of time, go back and re read Leviticus uh, chapter 26, 14, verses 14 and following, where it talks about the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And those curses are so pronounced that as we're moving along in First and Second Kings, you need to go back and read Leviticus 26 because what you'll realize really quickly is that everything that's about to happen to Israel as we read through the rest of, uh, of Second Kings is, is foretold in the curses of the covenant because ultimately we know where this is going to end up. It's going to end up in exile. And that's exactly what Leviticus says. If you, my people do not turn to me, this is what is going to happen. But we have here this, this opportunity, this inquisition, this covenant renewal opportunity, this covenant that God made with Abraham, this covenant of promise that never goes away. As Galatians 3.17 reminds us, that, that, that a, a later covenant does not nullify the promise that came beforehand to Abraham. And God promised to Abraham he says, this promise is for you and your children after you throughout all their generations, that I will be their God and you will be my people. You know, and Abraham was a person of faith. And so when Elijah calls and says, the Lord is God, he is calling them to repentance. He's saying, acknowledge that the Lord is truly God and not 
the gods that you are seeking to worship. And of course, they're trying to seek to worship the, the gods of their age, the gods of their nation now because of this pagan princess that, that Ahab been married. And it, it was a god that would be helpful to them. If you're an agrarian society, you want a god that's going to give you lots of rain, that's going to fertile the ground so that you could have a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables so that you can eat and so that you can have a great economy. You know, and, and so that's why those kind of gods are attractive. Those kind of gods are a pull, much like they are to us in many ways. At the end of the day, of course, though, the, this god of Baal was not able to bring fire down because there is really nothing that a fake god has to offer probably shouldn't say this since it's on recording. I, I used to work with a, an apologetics ministry, uh, and, and I used to have fun going back and forth with one of my co-workers uh, who did a lot of teaching on, on Wicca and, and, and pagan you, you know, stuff and, and witchcraft. And, and I go, you know, the, the secret is, and, and he would write books about, you know, Harry Potter and, you know, how bad that is and all that kind of stuff. My kids love Harry Potter. Can we cut some of this out? No. And, you know, I go, but the problem is there's no actual power in those things. Right? There's nothing in Scripture. Yes, there's demonic forces, and there, there is definitely a, a sense in which we wage spiritual warfare. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that, that a crystal has power to do something. There's nothing in Scripture that says if you say a certain, certain Latin words in a certain way, that it's going to make demons act in a certain way to, to give you some advantage. That kind of stuff is all fake. Just like these fake gods that have been set up here. Um, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious in deeds, doing wonders? The reality of, of this pull towards pagan worship or setting up our own idols is as old as time itself. Uh, Paul's concern for the Galatians, formerly you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again the weakness to worthless elementary principles of this world? whose slaves you want to be once more? I mean, do you want to really return to the enslavements, to the powers of this world? But Elijah calls the people and says, if Baal's God, then serve him. Don't try to add God on to what you're already doing. Right? Because that's what they're doing. They, they, they didn't, like, say that the Lord didn't exist. Right? They didn't completely reject the, the Israel God. They, they wanted to add him to the, the Parthenon of Baals. They, they would have multiple gods. And, like, and, and, and boy, do we do this on a regular basis. You know, the God of our children that we raise up to worship and how special and perfect they are. I don't personally struggle with that because, you know, my kids aren't perfect. I'm just kidding. You know, maybe our careers are what we worship, our prestige if we put a lot of faith and trust in the salvation of our investments in the last few weeks, we know that our confidence has waned greatly in that area. But if God is really worthy of your worship, then what Charles Spurgeon says is, I demand that you either follow him 
or else deny that he is God at all. And that's what Elijah is trying to do. He's trying to say, if you believe the Lord your God is a faithful God who cares for you, who loves you, who has redeemed you, who has called you by name, then go to worship him. Bow down and pray and rely on his strength in the midst of whatever is going on. Or don't worship him at all. Don't put your faith and trust in something else. And let me just add my God of the Bible as a lucky charm that I need whenever something else is going on in my life. It is either a soul devotion or something that needs to be denied. In our modern times, of course, as I've already alluded to, we tend to kind of set up these little types of idols. You know, we don't have little carved images that we set up to, to, to worship and burn incense on. You know, that's not kind of how our makeup is. But it is kind of the, what do we desire to put our time into? What is it that we think is going to comfort us in our time of weakness, and our time of need? C.S. Lewis says this of, of kind of modern idols. The books or the music which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It was only came through them that, that what came through them was a longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing in itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing in itself. They are only a scent of the flower that we have not found. The echo of the tune that we have not heard. The news from a country we have not yet seen. That, that what we end up doing is putting that great value in those things that ultimately will fail us. A couple other points here I'd like to, to bring out here in the passage. Um, Beginning in verse 36 here. And at that time, the offering of oblation, Elijah and the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things. At your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's just a a beautiful phrase, that that you have turned their hearts back. I I, I will not try to pronounce the the Hebrew because I was just, you know, I was reading through some of that because I always try to force myself in a, and it's just, just such a quick little phrase, their hearts turn backwards. You know, it would be almost a, a more literal translation. That he, the Lord, turned their hearts back. You know, it, it's not enough that they have an intellectual acknowledgement, right? Because something amazing is about to happen and fire is about to come down and a sacrifice is about to be burned away. And it's not an intellectual assessment that, wow, I saw this thing and therefore that must be true. And I have this intellectual assent to the reality that the God of Israel exists. That's not what true salvation is. It's not just an intellectual assent to, to knowing who the God of the Bible is. But it's a heart turned back. 
right? Our hearts turn from, from instead of longing after the things of this world, from a longing with our comfort and our security to be in the things that are found in this world, that our longings and our joy is found in another country, a country that we have never been, and a country that we long to see in that day, a country where the world is not broken, a country in which the creation is not groaning. Um... Well, we go on. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked it up and the water was in the trench. And all the people saw it and fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no, not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishun and slaughtered them there. Well, that's kind of a racy end there to that little passage right there. But it is the reality that God takes his holiness and his righteousness serious. We don't have time to unpack all the the theological implications of that right now, thank goodness. But it is harsh, it seems, at least in our own mindset. But if eternity is at stake, and if eternity is a reality, is it really that harsh for those who turn people away from the reality of who God truly is? Um, This passage goes on and says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and drink, for there is sound of a rushing rain. So Ahab went up and ate and drank, and Elijah went up to the top of the mountain of Carmel, and he bowed down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to the servant, go up now and look towards the sea. And he went up, and he looked and said, there's nothing, he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud and a man, like the size of a man's hand is raising in the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds and the wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. What this shows here is a couple things. One, we we know that Elijah was clearly somebody that had a lot of confidence in the faithfulness of God. Right? He's already shown that in the story. Now, he's he's seen the fire come down from heaven and burn the offering. And and so what is his response? Yep, it's gonna rain. I'm just gonna chill out here and wait. You just serve you go up to the top of the mountain, come back and get me whenever it starts raining, because you know, I know it's gonna rain. What does he do? He prostrates himself and throws his head between his knees, meaning he falls himself into prayer. Knowing that God is going to be faithful, knowing that God is always going to be trusted, is what pulls the people of God to prayer. It doesn't stop us from praying. Does God care for us more than the flowers of the field? Yes. Does he care for us more than the birds of the sky? Yes. Has he promised to be faithful for us and to love us? Yes. Should we not pray? Of 
course, we should fall down and prostrate ourselves in full prayer. Second, Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. And we've got to be careful about that passage, especially right now, because we want God to heal our land in our, our particular way. But we realize that, that the healing of the land spoke to redemption especially in the context of their society and their agrarian society. You know, just as, as I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up here, you realize that there was another mountain many years later. And instead of fire coming down upon a sacrifice, the very wrath of God due all of our sin came down on his own son. And he bore that wrath. And maybe more than now, maybe we're realizing all those things that we actually trust in. Maybe more than ever. Maybe, maybe you're listening to this and, and maybe you've been a part of our church body. Maybe you're not quite sure if this stuff is real or you're still struggling with how it fits into your overall life. But I ask you, all the things that you're trusting in to give you security, to give you hope, that you look towards to be what's going to give you joy, and as those things are stripped away, are you realizing that there is a faithful God who will always, always be true to his promises? It's a part of his character. And if you call upon him and humble yourself, he will forgive you of your sins and redeem you. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who is faithful. He is the Redeemer. Let's pray.